Oh, it is my great pleasure to introduce our closing keynote for today, Professor Ian Haney Lopez. I had the opportunity to hear Professor Lopez speak at the Race Forward Conference last year in Dallas. I was standing in the back of the room with Dr. Eddie Moore, Jr., who's also here with us today, and he's the founder of the White Privilege Conference and a regular speaker with us here at our Racial Justice Summit. And as Professor Lopez was speaking, we both looked at each other kind of across the room and began talking about how we were both trying to get him to come to our different conferences. <laughs> Um, Professor Lopez is one of the nation's leading thinkers on racism, racism's evolution in the United States since the civil rights era. His current research emphasizes the connection between racial divisions and growing wealth inequality in the United States. In his most recent book, Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class, he lays bare how over the last 50 years, politicians have exploited racial anxieties to convince many voters to support policies that ultimately favor the wealthiest while hurting everyone else. He's also the author of White by Law, as well as Racism on Trial, books that explore the legal construction of race. A constitutional law scholar, he's written extensively on how once promising legal responses to racism have actually been turned into restrictions on efforts to promote integration. He's been a visiting law professor at Yale, New York University, and Harvard, where he served as the Ralph E. Shikes Visiting Fellow in Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. He currently teaches law at the University of California, Berkeley, with a focus uh, in the areas of race and constitutional law. He holds a master's from Washington University, a master's in public policy from Princeton, a law degree from Harvard, and is a past recipient of the Alphonse Fletcher Fellowship, which is awarded to scholars whose work furthers the integration goals of Brown v. Board of Education. Please join me in welcoming Professor Lopez. Thanks, Colleen. Thanks very much, Colleen. I appreciate that introduction. Uh, and thank you all. It's really a great pleasure and a great honor to address you all, um, especially at a very high-energy event like this. I was walking through the lobby, and there was just a lot of buzz, a lot of excitement. And that's fantastic, because frankly, we've got a lot of work to do. Okay, so we're going to talk about dog whistle politics, and when I first had that slide up there, it was a slide of the cover of the book, but it was also a slide uh, with a photo of Donald Trump. What is dog whistle politics? Donald Trump. <laughs> so a lot of people are responding to Donald Trump by saying, yeah, he's a xenophobe, yeah, he's a race baiter, but don't worry, he's a buffoon, he's a clown, he's fringe, he's an outlier. No. He's a personification of 50 years of right-wing politics. It's dog whistling when he talks about illegal aliens as criminals and rapists. It's a dog whistle because a dog whistle is a form of political speech which on its surface is silent about race. Right? Like if you think about a literal dog whistle, a little dog, literal dog whistle, you blow it, human ears can't hear it, but it's at such, because it's at such a high frequency, but dogs can. That's the political metaphor here. It's a form of speech that's silent on one level, silent about race, illegal alien, criminals, rapists. No race word there, but just below the surface. There's a powerful racial jab, right? That these are, that these are Mexican, that they're dirty, that they're dark, that they're dangerous. Be afraid. That's dog whistle as political speech. But dog whistling is important not just because it's political speech, but because it's attached to a particular vision of government. 
It's a vision of government that says, in shorthand, government should not help most people. Most people are undeserving. Government should instead serve the very rich. And do we see Donald Trump saying this? Do you look at his tax plan released on Monday? He finally released his tax plan. What does he propose to do? He proposes to cut the tax rate for corporations and the very rich by over 37%. He proposes to reduce the tax rate on corporations and the very rich to a level we last saw. When do you think we last saw a level like this? No, not even Reagan. 1931. Back to the Great Depression. Because don't worry about people. You want to take care of corporations and the rich and billionaires like Trump. That's dog was a politics. That combination of coded racial speech combined with a view that government should serve corporations and the rich. I'm going to go to the next slide here. I'm going to start with this, sort of start back in the 1930s, start with the Great Depression. I want you to understand, as I do, that I'm really talking about 2016. So as we look at this slide, this is a slide that I liberated from Robert Reich. Love the guy. Very generous. He said, no problem. Actually, he doesn't know, so don't tell him. <laughs> the share of the income of the country held by the top 1%. You see it there in 1928. Then you see it drop precipitously. That's also known as the stock market crash. But then you see a, a steady decrease as the 1% have less and less of the income of the country because more and more of the income of the country is going to a working class and the middle class. What produced that? A set of government policies. Policies that created a social safety net. Policies that created routes of upward mobility, uh, like home mortgages, like free, excellent, accessible education. Policies like government investment in infrastructure. Policies that reined in the power of corporations, reined it in in terms of their power vis-a-vis -vis the workers, vis-a-vis -vis consumers, vis-a-vis -vis the environment, and finally a set of policies that, it, that taxed the very rich to distribute wealth downward and outward. And that produced the greatest expansion of the middle class the world has ever seen, which stalled out right around 1970 and then reversed right around 1980. And we've lost it in the intervening decades. So that now, the wealthy control as much wealth as they did back in 1928. Well, you see that dip in 2007. That's the other stock market crash. But you also know that since then, this so-called economic recovery, 95% of it has gone to the top 1%. Today, in fact, when I talk about the top 1%, it turns out the top 1%, they're actually poor. Because it's the one-tenth of 1% that really have the wealth. Today, the top one-tenth of 1% of the country own 22% of the country's wealth. Which is the same amount of wealth as is held by 90% of the rest of us. The top one-tenth of 1% have as much wealth as 90% of the rest of us. Now, we know the policies that are driving that. If you talk to Robert Reich, Paul Krugman, uh, Joe Stiglitz, they'll tell you what those policies are, right? They tell you over and over and over again. We've slashed spending on social welfare. We've, we've slashed spending on things like education, infrastructure, inner cities. 
we've, we've um, given corporations control over the regulators. We've cut taxes for the very rich. We know the policies that are creating toxic economic inequality. What we're not so clear on is why those policies are broadly popular with a significant segment of the American voter. And that's the story I'm telling. That's the story of dog whistle politics. Fast forward, 1964. See, we're making progress. So we just jumped 30 years, just like that. Barry Goldwater. So the New Deal, these sorts of activist government programs created this broad middle class, hugely popular with Democrats and Republicans alike, but not with everybody. Along comes Barry Goldwater. He's the scion of a wealthy retail family in Arizona. Gets himself elected senator from Arizona, and he's a die-hard opponent of the New Deal. And in, and in a sense, this is symbolized. I've got him up there, you know, dressed as a senator, but also dressed as a cowboy. That's not just an Arizona affectation. That's a political ideology. Because what, what Goldwater's saying is the ideal political person is a cowboy. Generous to his family. And I mean, we, it is so gendered, so we might as well put the gender in it, right? Generous to his loving stay-at-home wife. Generous and patient with his kids. Generous with his community and with his church. But at the end of the day, the cowboy makes it on his own and owes nobody anything. And if he strikes it rich, bonanza. He keeps it all. But if he goes bust, then the cowboy should have the dignity to lean up against the cactus and die quietly. Now that's, that's this ideology, the ideology of the rugged individual. And who's this popular with? Who's this popular with? I'll tell you who it's popular with. It's popular with young folks, especially young men, teenagers, right, who still don't know what life is going to bring. They can still imagine themselves as getting out there and conquering the world, right, young people. Who else is this popular with? Rich people. Rich people, because they want a story that says I made it all on my own and I get to keep it. And they're not too worried if they get sick or if somebody in their family loses a job. They got bucks. They'll take care of it. So you know where this sort of, this sort of rugged individual thing is really popular? Silicon Valley. They're young. They're rich. They love this libertarian story. But this story didn't have traction in the rest of the country, especially not after the Great Depression. And Barry Goldwater knew it didn't have traction. So though he was going to campaign as this rugged individualist, he needed a strategy. How is he going to sell this story? Here's his strategy. This is the only quote I'm going to show, and it's an important one. This is writing by Robert Novak, a conservative journalist. He's attended the 1963 Republican National Committee meeting, and he comes out of that meeting and he says, a good many, perhaps a majority of the GOP party's leadership, Envision substantial political gold to be mined in the racial crisis by becoming, in fact, though not in name, the white man's party. Now, I want to be absolutely clear. This is strategy, not racism. Up through 1960, Republicans and Democrats were just about equally committed to civil rights, which is to say not much, but just about equally. But that changes, right? And we should be clear, too, this, the white man's party. If there's a white man's party in, in 1963, and there is, it's 
not the Republicans. It's the Southern Democrats. It's the Southern Democrats that have used fraud and force and violence to completely disenfranchise African-American voters, to make their party essentially a whites-only party. They're the white man's party. But as a matter of strategy, Goldwater and the Republican leadership are saying to themselves, we can break the New Deal coalition. The New Deal coalition of working class whites in the South and out of the South, African Americans and Northeastern liberals. We can break that coalition because the civil rights movement is destabilizing race relations and it's increasing anxiety among white voters. We can use race to break the coalition. But, precisely because of the civil rights movement, we can't do so through the naked language of white supremacy. We cannot become in name the white man's party. So how do you become the white man's party but don't do so in name? You talk in code. And this is where dog whistling really enters into our politics. What's the code? Barry Goldwater began to campaign on two themes. States' rights, freedom of association. Now, as soon as I say that, I've got to wake people up. Because I mean, those themes are boring. States' rights, freedom of association. What is that? I mean, that's what he's going to campaign on? You know, at least Donald Trump's like, build a wall. You know, Goldwater's like, states' rights and freedom of association. Come on. Except, everybody knew that states' rights meant the right of southern states to resist the federal mandate of integration. And everybody knew that freedom of association meant the right of white business owners and white homeowners to refuse to deal with African Americans, to exclude them from their places of business, to refuse to rent to them, to refuse to sell to them. States' rights and freedom of association, those are dog whistles. How'd he do? He did terrible! He did absolutely terrible. He got crushed. Why did he get crushed? Because he's running against Lyndon Johnson. He's running against a president who embodies the New Deal ideal of an activist government that's going to help take care of everybody, that's going to be a government for the people. And this ideal is still immensely popular. And to give you a sense of who Johnson is and what he's saying, I want you to watch this 1964 campaign commercial from Lyndon Johnson. Poverty is not a trait of character. It is created anew in each generation, but not by heredity, by circumstances. Today, millions of American families are caught in circumstances beyond their control. Their children will be compelled to live lives of poverty unless the cycle is broken. President Johnson's war on poverty has this one goal, to provide everyone a chance to grow and make his own way. A chance at education, a chance at training, a chance at a fruitful life. For the first time in the history of America, this can be done. Vote for President Johnson on November 3rd. The stakes are too high for you to stay home. And they did. But, but just stop for a minute. A national candidate for president, the Democratic candidate for president, 
gets up and says to the country, poverty is not a trait of character. It's, it's not disposition. It's not culture. It's structure. We have the power and the resources to change it. We have the moral duty to end it. Let's end poverty in a generation. Wanted to end poverty by the nation's bicentennial by 1976. And 67% of whites voted for Lyndon Johnson. And the pundits turned and they said, so it's clear. We are fundamentally a liberal country that believes in the power of activist government to create a broad, inclusive, and just economy that serves everybody. It's clear. Because when somebody tries to challenge that, like Barry Goldwater, he's crushed. That's what all the pundits said in 64. But if you think back about that map that I just showed you, there was a warning. There was a warning coming out of the South. Those five red states... That's the Deep South, the states with the largest African-American population. And it was a shock that these states voted for Barry Goldwater. Well, the other one is Arizona. That's not too much of a shock. It's just Arizona doing its thing. (laughs) But there's the Deep South, and this is a shock. Why is it a shock? Well, remember, who's voting in the Deep South? It's almost exclusively whites in 1964. And they hate the Republican Party. Hate the Republican Party. Why? They blame the Republican Party, the party of Lincoln, for what they call the Northern War of Aggression. Even more, they blame the Republicans for integration. It was a Republican ex-governor, Earl Warren, who wrote the opinion in Brown versus Board of Education that struck down school segregation across the South. And it was a Republican president, Dwight Eisenhower, who was the first modern president to order federal troops back into the South to enforce that order. These people frickin' loathed Republicans. (laughs) And they loved the New Deal. They loved the New Deal. The South, even more than the North, had been devastated by the Great Depression. Indeed, a New Deal institution, the Tennessee Valley Authority, brought electricity to millions for the first time ever across the South. And Barry Goldwater was running around the South saying, I am going to dismantle the New Deal, break it up into little pieces and sell it. And here was the warning that the most die-hard Democrats, the most die-hard supporters of New Deal activist government could be convinced to abandon that party and to abandon activist government if they were appealed to in racial terms. That was the alarm in the night. Would it work? It wasn't immediately clear when Richard Nixon ran in 68. But by 1970, number crunchers on both the Democratic side and the Republican side had spoken. And they said, yes, race is a wedge that can be driven with a sledgehammer through the Democratic coalition. Break the connection between the white working class, African Americans, and Northeastern liberals. And that's what Richard Nixon started to do. He started a full dog whistle campaign. Talked about states' rights, but he also talked about ending forced busing. As if the issue were putting children on school buses. We've been doing that for decades. As opposed to the real issue, putting children on school buses to integrate northern schools. 
And Nixon also really hammered at the language of law and order and crime and urban unrest. Also talked about the silent majority. Right? And now, all of these are dog whistles. But we know what Nixon had in mind because, I don't know if you know this, but he taped himself. He, taped, he bugged the White House. <laughs> Thank you, Richard Nixon. Because we have him watching one of his own campaign commercials about urban unrest and law and order. And then we hear him say, that's it. That hits it right on the head. It's all about the damn Negro and Puerto Rican groups. Nixon knew he was race baiting. But to the public, he was always talking in code. Law and order. Silent majority. Urban unrest. States rights. Forced busing. How'd he do? In 1964, 67% of whites voted for a president who promised to end poverty in a, in a generation. Eight years later, 70% of whites voted for Richard Nixon and his dog whistle campaign. And the New Deal coalition, which seemed like common sense, seemed like bedrock American principle, was dead eight years later. And I mean dead in the sense that no Democratic candidate for president has won a majority of the white vote since Lyndon Johnson. It's been more than 50 years since a Democratic candidate for president has won a majority of the white vote. Race broke the New Deal coalition. Richard Nixon figured out how to do it. This man, Ronald Reagan, capitalized on it. So this is Ronald Reagan. He has just won the Republican nomination to be there, that party's candidate for president. This is 1980. This is his first official campaign stop. He's gone down in Neshoba County, Mississippi. Philadelphia, Mississippi. Now, hold on. He's just won the Republican nomination to be their candidate for president. This is going to be a big media moment. He's introducing himself to the country. Everybody's going to be there, so he's going to go to... Philadelphia, Mississippi. Where's that? I'll tell you where that is. Sixteen years earlier, three civil rights workers had been kidnapped, tortured, killed, their bodies stuffed in an earthen dam, not found for months. This is Philadelphia, Mississippi. Ronald Reagan goes down to Neshoba County to Philadelphia, Mississippi in his first official campaign stop. What's he say? I believe in states' rights. The crowd goes wild because they understand what he's saying. He's saying, good white people out there, I'm with you. But this is only part of what he's saying. And I've got to tell you, shocking as it is, it's not the most important part. Richard Nixon was a liberal Republican. So Richard Nixon, I know, I know, I know, I know. You think it's an oxymoron. But there was such a thing before all of this demagoguery completely hijacked the Republican Party, too. There was such a thing. Ronald Reagan was a Goldwater Republican, got his start as a spokesperson for Barry Goldwater, and believed, like Barry Goldwater did, that government was the enemy, that true freedom was being free from government, and that government should really help the rich. Right? Ronald Reagan got his start as a spokesperson for Barry Goldwater, but also as a spokesperson for General Electric. 
Ronald Reagan identified with an anti-government, pro-corporate ethos. And he understood the power of racial provocation, and he linked them. How, how would he do that? So he would speak to ballrooms like this. Fabulous faces. But full overwhelmingly of white folks. That was his base. In fact, in an awkward moment, Nancy Reagan was given an introduction for, for, for Ronald at what point? Awkward moment. And she says, it's so great to see all you beautiful white people. And she said, excuse me, beautiful people, Freudian slip. But of course, that was his audience. Now, Reagan would look out at this audience, look out at this sea of white faces, and he'd tell a story like this. He'd say, I know how frustrated you are when you're standing in line to buy hamburger and some young fella ahead of you is buying a T-bone steak with food stamps. The first time he told that story, he was a little worried, worried that it was going to be too subtle. So he didn't say some young fella. He said some young buck. A southern term for a strong black man. And here's the story he's telling. He's looking out at this audience and he's saying, I know you're good white people, hardworking, playing by the rules, decent and law-abiding. And because you're good, decent, hard-working, law-abiding folks, you're struggling. You're really struggling to get by. And let's be clear, a lot of people were struggling. A lot of people were struggling. Right? The country is coming through a recession, oil shock, etc. A lot of people are struggling. A lot of people are anxious. So he says, I know you're struggling. Now let me tell you why. Because of black people. Because black people, they're strong. They could work, but they don't want to. They're scheming. They're larcenous. They'd rather rip off the system. And these scheming, lazy, no good black people who are ripping off the system, they're laughing at you because they're eating a the T-bone steak when you're eating hamburger. Right? This is, now, this is a story he told. We should be clear, it wasn't just about black men. I mean, if there's one term that captures dog whistle politics, it's this term, welfare queen. This was a story, too, about black women and brown women on welfare saying they could work, they should work. But they're lazy, scheming, larcenous, rip-off artists. And they're the cause of your insecurity and your misery. So this is the racial story that he's telling. But here's the real culprit. And this is where the real work goes. Blame government. Blame government because it's government that's reaching its hands into the pockets of the hard-working whites and taking their tax dollars, their hard-earned tax dollars, and wasting it on no good, undeserving minorities. And it's government, and this is here he's going to pick up the law and order theme. It's government that refuses to protect decent law-abiding white folks from marauding criminal minorities. What do we need? We need a war on crime. We need a war on minorities. We need to cut them off. Right? So, so here's the story. White people, you're in trouble. You're facing economically anxious times. Blame black people, but even more, resent government. Because government's the real culprit. And then Reagan says, but I know what we can do in his sunny way. I know what we can do. We can end all those wasteful programs. 
We can starve the beast in the language of Grover Norquist. We can cut government off. We can cut taxes because they're just wasting your money anyway. And since you shouldn't trust government, you should trust corporations. Let's get government out of the way of the marketplace. You recognize this? Cut the programs that build the middle class. Give corporations control over the regulators. Cut the taxes for the very rich. And let's be clear, Reagan promised tax cuts for the hardworking whites. The tax cuts he actually enacted favored the very rich. Over the 1980s, Reagan's tax cuts transferred a trillion dollars of wealth to the top 1%. And we've never repealed those tax cuts. And every decade since, another trillion has gone to the very wealthy. And when you look at that Robert Reich graph that shows you income inequality starting to surge after 1980, you ought to think tax cuts for the rich. You ought to think corporate control over government. You ought to think an end to spending on programs to build the middle class. And you ought to think race. Because it's race more than anything else that's doing this work. This is dog whistle politics. Now, I want to be clear, it's not just race. It's not just race. This isn't a story about race all alone. In fact, racial politics is part of a larger culture war politics. So you know that Reagan, it started with Nixon, but Reagan really helped cement the identification of the Republican Party with evangelical Christians with a message to Christians that your religion is under assault, helped cement the connection between the Republican Party and, and a strident anti-abortion stance. Right? And this is tied very closely to reproductive choice and the position of working women in the country. Right? And by the way, Planned Parenthood. This is dog whistle politics. It's a gender dog whistle politics, but it is pure dog whistle politics. It's actually a combination of religion and gender saying to people, those liberals, those bad Democrats, they're urban sophisticates who are immoral and don't respect stay-at-home uh, uh, wives. Fight back against them. Right? That's the underlying message. This is that sort of dog as a politics. It's a part of a larger culture war politics. Okay? That's one caveat. Here's another caveat. The basic conservative message, more than anything else, the basic conservative message is don't trust government. Reject government. And of course, they don't actually, they themselves don't reject government, they just hijack it. But for all y'all, right, speaking to the public, they say, hate government, reject government. And they made it easy to reject government. Well, part of it was the Vietnam War. Part of it was Watergate. But part of it is during this era and then perfected during the Gingrich Revolution, the Republicans come to understand that as a basic strategy, they should gum up the works of government. They should keep government from being effective. Because even if they're the ones gumming up the works, it proves their basic point. Government can't help you. Right? So over and over again, we see Republicans ensuring that government gets nothing done. And we think to ourselves, this is dysfunctional. What are they thinking? They run as if they want to govern, and then they refuse to govern. They're like, oh, no, that is their strategy. Unless they can get control of the legislature and the executive, and even better, the courts, whereupon they do govern. And then they move very quickly to take us back to the 1920s. They move very quickly to hammer away at unions, to cut funding for public education, to pass massive tax cuts for the rich. Welcome 
to Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to bring us up to the present, but I'm going to do so by talking about some of the changes that have occurred. This is the basic model of dog whistle politics. You see it happening now. You see it happening now, but there have been some big, important changes. Big change number one. Remember, Democrats knew as early as 1970 that they were vulnerable to racial attack, to racial appeal. So what did they decide to do? Zip. They decided to stay silent. Because in their thinking, they accepted the idea that this rising racial insecurity generated by the civil rights movement was a sort of a grassroots sentiment that they just needed to let it play out, that it would go away on its own. And they didn't realize that, yeah, there was this rising insecurity, that the insecurity was real, but that the Republicans would make a, a concerted campaign strategy about stoking and then constantly reinventing that anxiety. They didn't realize it, but by 1990 it was clear. This wasn't just going to fade. You've got to address it somehow. Clinton figures out how. Here is how he did it. They're a new generation of Democrats, Bill Clinton and Al Gore, and they don't think the way the old Democratic Party did. They've called for an end to welfare as we know it, so welfare can be a second chance, not a way of life. They've sent a strong signal to criminals by supporting the death penalty, and they've rejected the old tax-and-spend politics. Clinton's balanced 12 budgets, and they've proposed a new plan investing in people, detailing $140 billion in spending cuts they'd make right now. Clinton-Gore, for people, for a change. Quite right. How do you respond to dog whistle politics? You become Republican. I'm going to end welfare as a way of life. Well, whose way of life is it? I'm going to crack down on crime. Well, who are the criminals? I'm going to slash the federal government because the federal government's the enemy? Every one of those was a Republican theme. And I want to be absolutely clear. This isn't just a story of Clinton mimicking Republican themes. This is how he governed. Clinton, much more than Reagan, slashed away at welfare. Clinton, much more than Reagan, ramped up what had been a war on drugs into a full-scale war on crime. When we think about mass incarceration, we need to think about dog whistle politics, not just as something the Republicans did, but as something the Democrats joined into. For the last three decades, we've lived with a political system in which Republicans and Democrats alike have competed with each other to show who can be tougher on welfare, who can be tougher on crime, who can be tougher on public education, who can be tougher on our cities. And the consequences have been devastating for minority communities. Absolutely devastating. If you think mass incarceration, when Richard Nixon gets started with his dog whistling in 1970, the country as a whole had 200,000 people serving a year or more in prison. Now that number is 2.3 million. 11 times as high. We have 5% of the world's population. We have 25% of the world's prisoners. We have more prisoners than apartheid South Africa. And let's be clear, this isn't crime. Crime does not explain this. Our overwhelmingly black and brown prison population is not there because of crime. When you control for age and for income, and those are the two big predictors of criminal conduct, 
Age, because young people are risk takers. Income, partly because poor people are more desperate and partly because poor people live their lives in public where they're more susceptible to aggressive policing. When you control for age and income, blacks are slightly less likely to commit crimes than whites. This is not crime. This is politics. And I want you to just... just, I get stunned. You think about the moral bankruptcy of our leadership that they would put millions of people in prison, break their families, break their communities, shatter their lives so that they can get elected and look tough and then rule in favor of corporations. But that's what both of our parties have been doing. Democrats too. So that's one big change. It starts with the GOP, and i got to be clear, you know, it's mainly still a GOP tactic. But when the Democrats are fully engaged, very often they engage by mimicking the right. Next big change. So this is this crazy photo that I lifted from the 2014 midterm elections. Um, It symbolizes what's happened in terms of the racial boogeyman. Okay, so, 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 so Douglas politics comes out of the South. It comes out of a sort of an anti-black hysteria. But after 9-11, that hysteria broadened to include Muslims and Latinos. Initially, Muslims as Muslim extremists painted with the face of Osama bin Laden. But again, the fear wasn't uh, Muslim extremists over in Iraq or over in Afghanistan. The fear was... They're coming here. They're taking over. We've got to make sure there's no victory mosque in Manhattan. You know, Kansas has got to pass a law. I like this. I love Kansas. Kansas has got to pass a law saying no Sharia law in its courts. Because they were just about to do it. <laughs> those, those judges were just about to draw on Sharia law and the legislature swooped in and saved the day. Right? This is the narrative. Muslims are coming to get us. Right? This is Ben Carson saying no Muslim could be a president. Right? That's one big change. Another big change. Anti-Latino hysteria. Now, there's been anti-Latino hysteria for a long time, especially in places like Texas, California, but after 9-11, it goes national. And it goes national partly because of the demographics of immigration. Latinos are in much more, many more places than they used to be. It used to be Latinos southwest, west, but now increasingly there's Latinos all over midwest, southeast, northeast. So that's part of it. But the other big part of it is this narrative of brown, culturally different, dangerous, invading people that comes out of the anti-Muslim fervor is easily transferred to Latinos. And this photo that I had up there, that shows the combination. That's this photo. This is from like this right-wing news thing, whatever. It's this like crazy white guy who's dressed himself up like ISIS got himself a, Holly, uh, you know, a Halloween decapitated head, and he's filming himself crossing the Rio Grande. And the narrative for the 2014 election, I'll tell you, if you look at Republican ads, their number one narrative coming out of Republican ads for the 2014 midterms, ISIS and Ebola are crossing the southern border. And he just wrapped it all up together. Right? Now, did the facts matter? No, because it's the fears that matter. And here I want to stop for a second. I talked about Clinton and mass incarceration. We've got to call out Barack Obama for mass deportation. 
we absolutely have to call him out. He knew what was happening with this demonization of Latinos, of undocumented immigrants, and he wanted to get out ahead of it. So he launched a mass deportation campaign, the likes of which we have never seen. I mean, just to, just to put it in scale. In the 1950s, the country was seized by a sort of red panic, xenophobic hysteria, and the federal government announced what it called Operation Wetback. Like, how effed up is that? They got Operation Wetback, and they deport about a million, million and a half people. And I say people, not Mexicans, because about half of them were U.S. citizens. Rounded them up, put them on buses, took them across the border. Barack Obama has deported well over 2 million people, the largest sustained level of deportation we have ever seen in the history of this country. And let's be absolutely clear, if we're going to talk facts, net migration to the United States from Mexico over the last five years, net migration, zero. We are not under threat from a flood of Mexicans. Net migration is zero. And also, why did Obama buy himself with all those deportations? Did he manage to protect himself against the criticism that the borders are open? Not at all. Because this sort of racial politics is about fear. It's not about facts. And cracking down and ruining people's lives and shoving millions of people across the border and creating enormous insecurity in families that live here about whether their parents will come home buys you nothing except a lot of pain. Right? But that's dog whistle politics. Okay. Third big change. We've talked about how dog was politics is now democratic. We've talked about how the themes that were once used for African Americans now are applied to Muslims and to Latinos. I want to suggest that under dog was politics, those same themes now apply to everybody who's in the bottom half of the country economically. All right, so you know this clip. This is Romney's 47% clip, but I want you to watch it again, thinking in terms of dog whistle politics. There are 47% of the people who vote for the president and not All right, there are 47% who are with him, who are dependent upon government, who believe that, that they are victims, who believe that government has a responsibility to care for them, who believe that they are entitled to health care, to food, to housing, to you name it. But that's, that's an entitlement, and government should give it to them. And they will vote for this president no matter what. And, and I mean, the president starts off with 48, 49, 43. He starts off with a huge number. Uh, these are people who pay no income tax. 47% of Americans pay no income tax. So our message of low taxes doesn't connect. He'll be out there talking about tax cuts for the rich. I mean, that's what they sell every, every four years. And, uh, and so my job is not to worry about those people. I'll never convince them. They should take personal responsibility and care for their lives. What I have to do is convince the 5 to 10% in the center. You know that language. These are people who have an entitlement mentality. And what do they think they're entitled to? I love his scoffing. What do they think they're entitled to food, to shelter, to health care? Like, what are they, crazy? Right, but listen to this. They have an entitlement mentality. They refuse to take responsibility for themselves. They think they're victims. That's the language that Nixon perfected talking about black people. But Mitt Romney is talking about half the country. Now, we've got to pause here and be clear on what half the country this is, right? He's picked up that 47% figure as the proportion of the population that does not pay federal income taxes. 
And he's using that to paint them as moochers. When in fact, yes, 47% don't pay income taxes, but they pay all sorts of other taxes. Right? They're going to they're pay Social Security taxes. They're going to pay Medicare taxes. They're going to pay sales taxes. If they're homeowners, they're going to pay property taxes. If they're renters, they're going to pay somebody else's property taxes. Right? On average, these folks in the bottom 47% spend 14% of their total income in taxes. Mitt Romney spent 13%. This lion SOB had the goal to stand up and talk about people as, as refusing to take responsibility, as being victims, as having an entitlement mentality, and they're contributing more to the country than he is. That's gall. Right? But I'll tell you what else is gall. To say to the country, I want to be the president. I want to represent you all. Except half of you I don't care about. That's, that's mind-boggling. That's mind-boggling. Here's what else he was saying, right, in his more affirmative moments. I promise to get government out of the way of business. I promise to slash federal programs that are wasteful. I promise to give tax cuts to the job creators. Right? The very policies that are driving a shift in all of our wealth to the rich. This is what Romney's promising to do. Meanwhile, a, a, a video clip of him has gone viral with him saying, I don't care about half of you. How did he do? I say that and it's like it's some suspense or something. How'd he do? How about this? How'd he do among whites? If only white people had voted, this is what our electoral map would have looked like. The New York Times, after the election, day after the election, had quoted a Republican operative who said, there just aren't enough old white men to win anymore. This is not a story of old white men. Mitt Romney won among the old, but among the young. Even the youngest cohort of white voters voted for Mitt Romney. He won among men, but he won among women. He won in the South, and he won all across the country. Mitt Romney won 59% of the white vote. Three out of five white voters. The only candidates who've done better are Richard Nixon in 1972 and Ronald Reagan in his re-election in 1984. This is not a story of declining prejudice that's gradually playing itself out. This is a story of a party that has mastered the art of racial fear-mongering. Mitt Romney lost... But if he'd won 3% more of the white vote, he would have won the popular vote across the country. 3% more. 62% instead of 59%. He would have won the popular vote. How did Republican candidates do in the 2014 midterms? They won that 3%. Republican candidates for Congress in the, mid, in the 2014 midterms won 62% of the white vote. This is the politics we're living. Well, no, no, sorry. Because this is the age of Twitter and the Internet and things really go very quickly. So this was 2012, 2014. Everything's changed since then. Oh! Is this dog whistle politics? America stands on the brink. 
at a time and place in our history where failed leaders preside over a nation adrift, with family incomes in steady decline, dreams stifled, and a foreign policy that apologizes for America and projects weakness abroad. America can't stop this by looking to the past or for answers in Washington, D.C. To reclaim our destiny, we must turn to bold, fresh, and new ideas from those incubators of reform, the states. The folks in Washington like this top-down approach that's old and artificial and outdated that says the government knows best. We believe that you should build the economy from the ground up. And that's exactly what states like Wisconsin are doing. Leading America's revival with bold conservative reform and new ideas. Ideas that empower people and spark innovation. That turn around troubled economies. That eliminate huge deficits and turn them into surpluses. That reduce the size and scope of government. That cut taxes and create jobs. Those groups in Washington... They tend to measure success by how many people are dependent on the government. We measure success by how many people are no longer dependent on the government. We understand that true freedom and prosperity doesn't come from the mighty hand of the government. It comes from empowering people to live their own lives and control their own destiny through the dignity that comes from work. In America, we take a day off to celebrate the 4th of July and not the 15th of April because in America, we celebrate our independence from the government, not our dependence on it. Now I feel bad. Now I feel like, you know, it's like there's PTSD out there and I'm triggering it. And Sorry, folks. So the good news for the country, if not for you all, the good news for the country is this guy has no personality and he melted down on the national stage and he's gone nationally. But I want you to think about what this represents in terms of dog whistle politics, because this really is this Romney move, where dog whistling is the language we're going to use to talk about everybody. But I want to, I want to start slightly differently, and maybe controversially. That's actually a really good commercial. It's a really powerful commercial, and I think the power of it comes because it's got a couple of very intense truths, deeply felt truths. One of those is, is the sort of, I know it's out of favor on the left, but this is a sort of the patriotic truth. We're a beautiful people. And it's a beautiful country, and there's a lot to be proud of here. And I think that that's, that's part of the sense of it is like, there's a lot to be proud of, a lot to love about the United States. That's one truth. The other truth is, people are in trouble. People we care about, people we admire, whether it's soldiers or, or industrial workers, or people staying at home, homemakers, people are in trouble. And what would really help them would be decent jobs, real economic security, pensions. Right? People are in trouble. Those are the truths of the ad that I think this is a beautiful people and we are in trouble. That's the, those are the truths, I think, that give it so much resonance. But here are the lies. 
that Scott Walker cares about working people? He doesn't care about working people. He cares about the Koch brothers. Right? David Koch picked him out, picked out Scott Walker as his preferred candidate. He's gotten millions, not from small donors, but from these big tycoons. Second lie, that the policies he proposes would actually be good for working people. Are you kidding me? It's all about busting the power of working people to resist the power of his corporate backers. He's not going to be good for working people. He's going to be disastrous for working people. Or, or, well, I guess just in Wisconsin. Next lie. Government's the enemy. The government is the problem. That if you take anything from government, you're somehow dependent. And, and you're a loser and you're a leech and you're a mooch. It's like, No! Government's for all of us. Government should help everybody. But his lie is that government's the problem. And the last lie, that if this is a beautiful country, it's beautiful because of whites. That the camera should leave its loving, lingering gaze on the face of whites. Yeah, it should show that there are some people of color. Skip over them quickly and linger on the face of whites. We are a beautiful people. Except one of the ugliest things about us is racial prejudice, racial division. And we need to guard against that. Right? So these lies, this sense that government is the enemy, that we need to worry about whites, that these programs are going to actually help people, that's all dog whistle politics. Right? Now again, Scott Walker's gone. Except for you. Sorry. No, he's not. That was, there's a plaintiff whale up here. These are, the same pro, these are the same things that Donald Trump is saying. And again, I started out by saying people are painting Trump as an extremist. He is an extremist. But he's barely more extreme than the other Republican candidates. Right? Whether it's going to be Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, Carly Fiorino, doesn't matter. They're all in the same vein. Use this sort of xenophobia, this racial panic, this, this sort of populist xenophobia to win support for a set of policies that are really all about transferring money to the very rich. So what can we do? What can we do? Okay. Now, the first thing that we can do is we can do what liberals have been doing for about 50 years. You can sit on your butt and not talk about race. Right? Because that was their basic strategy. Or you can imitate them. No. First thing we have to do is we need to speak out against racism. We need to speak out against racism. And here's what I mean. A lot of people who are manipulated by this sort of dog whistle politics, they don't believe they're racist. And, and honestly, they're not racist. If you understand racism as a sort of hate every black person kind of a thing, they're not racist in that sense. And so the whole point of dog whistling, part of it is to hide the racism from the critics, but part of it is to hide the racism from the people being manipulated. So we need to call it out. Now, a lot of people are going to be like, that's not racism, blah, 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 but, but it's clear that calling it out and challenging it forces people to think about whether they're being racially manipulated, and it actually makes them much less susceptible to this sort of manipulation. We all need to speak out against racism. We need to, to be perfectly blunt, we need to name and shame 
people who engage in this sort of politics. Second thing we need to do. We need to integrate race and economic justice. We need to integrate race and economic justice. Here's what I mean. And this is going to be a little bit controversial. I know you all are a racial justice crowd. Here's what's happening with race. Racial justice folks are saying, we need to focus on what's happening in communities of color because it is an absolute injustice. It is a deep, deep, dangerous uh, uh, phenomenon, what we're doing, the damage we're doing to communities of color. That's the racial justice folks. The white folks, the rest of them, are saying, yeah, no, that's right. We should, we should definitely deal with that. Right after I solve my problems, because i got deep problems. Those are the liberal whites. The other 60% are saying, see, the Republicans are right. The major institutions in society care more about those minorities than they care about me. And every time they tell me that I need to care about what's going on in the lives of minorities, it just confirms no one cares about me. And they double down in this sense of racial resentment. So when I say integrate race and economic justice, I mean as a matter of strategy. We need to spend at least part of our time stressing to whites how they lose through racism. Now, usually we do this on moral terms. Usually we say something like, to the extent that you're invested in white privilege, you're, you know, the sort of the, 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 the James Baldwin, you know, you're, you're, this, this corrupts you morally and you can't see, da, 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 you can't be fully human. That's all true, too. And you'll definitely get 4 or 5% of whites that way. <laughs> right. But we actually need a race conversation that says race is not just about prejudice. It's not just about individuals, and it's not just about what we've done as a society to people of color. Race is how we've structured our government and our economy, and we are all losing. Yes, communities of color are being particularly devastated, but we are all losing. That's what it means to integrate race and economic justice. Here's one more thing that it means, and this is really important. A lot of liberal institutions, to the extent that they're going to engage with race, say, great, we're going to have a race department, a civil rights department, a human equity department, and we're going to give you at least one-tenth of one percent of our budget. (laughs) Go do it. Right? And we've segregated. This is segregating the race problem. It's saying, yeah, there's a race problem, so we're going to create this little department, but but the rest of us aren't going to do race. Because race isn't about the rest of us. It's just, so we're going to... And let's be brutally honest. Let's go hire some minorities to staff our civil rights department. And we're going to give them a little bit of money. And then we're going to say, you're the race people. And the rest of us are the real people. But you're the race people. Right? If we keep doing that, we make it impossible to see how race really is about... Listen, I don't care what issue you, you care about as a liberal. Campaign finance reform, the environment, health care, education... I don't care what issue you care about. It is race in the United States. Because race is being used to demonize government as an effective response. Now, unless you're working on an issue in which government would be no help at all, I don't know what that would be. You've got to deal with race. So we've got to integrate race and economic justice. And that means putting pressure on our organizations to desegregate race, to see that race is influencing every part of their operation. Okay. 
Last. Broad social movement. So I love the theme of this conference. From moment to movement. Because that's what we need. The major institutions of society are not about to solve this issue. The Democratic Party, too, is largely dependent on corporate donations. Except for Bernie. Go Bernie. But that means that if we're going to answer the power of money, we can only answer it through the power of people. And this is going to require broad social mobilization. Okay? What is the point of that mobilization? Two main things that mobilization needs to accomplish. One, it needs to reclaim government. And, and I, I really want to stress this. The principal target of dog whistling is not people of color. It's government. It's trashing government so that the right can hijack it. We need to reclaim government for people and not corporations. A lot of people on the left, in a weird way, have bought into the idea that government is distant, that government is the problem. I've gone to conferences in which, you know, three days of incredible workshops on what we can do at the grassroots, independent of government, and not one person says we've got to make a demand for government. But I'll tell you what. If government remains in the hands of corporations, we will be fighting for crumbs for decades and decades. So we need a social movement that makes a specific demand to reclaim government. That doesn't mean we need government's permission, but we shouldn't reject government and say that's not about us. It is about us. And here, just, sorry, I want to give a shout out to government workers. Because what we've done is we've demonized politicians. But a lot of government workers are incredible people. They made the decision to go do government work because they wanted to make society better. And instead they get trashed by all of this negativity. They're lazy. They're incompetent. They're ripping off the system. We should cut their salaries. We should cut their pensions. Right? Government employees are getting dog whistled. Right? So I want to give a shout out to government employees to say, hey, you guys are doing great work. I know a lot of you sitting over there. You guys are doing great work. So join into this effort to make government as responsive as possible to people and not corporations. That's one goal of the movement. Here's the other goal. Identity. Republicans have been playing identity politics for 50 years. They pretend that what they're talking about is economics, but they're not. They're talking about fear of status. That your status as a white man, that your status as a man, that your status as a homemaker, that your status as a Christian, that your status as a heterosexual, that's all getting eroded by these surging minorities and the liberal government that takes care of them. It's all about status anxiety. And that means we can't just respond in terms of economics. We cannot just respond by telling people, join together in this broad-based coalition because we're going to protect your pension. We need a broad-based coalition that says, join together in being proud of America because we are a people who take care of each other. Join together in pride in a new, inclusive identity of mutual respect and mutual care. We've got to articulate that people can have a new identity, a new sense of self that is rooted in their willingness to fight for each other across these divisions rather than being divided by them. So I'm just going to stop there. Uh, 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 one last thing I want to say from moment to movement. Thank you all.